This evening we'll be looking at, uh, in our text, just 1 Corinthians 13, verse 14, one verse, the last verse of the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, but in preparation for that, we're going to read how 2 Corinthians starts as well. Just to get us some context, to know what's going on, we are jumping into a series of letters that's going on here. And we're jumping, to, we're going to be looking at the very end of it. But let's read then. 2 Corinthians 1, and then after that, we'll go to chapter 13. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read the first 22 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And we'll flip to the end of the book, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll just read his conclusion there with a special focus on verse 14, his benediction to his beloved Corinthian church. So beginning in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says there, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Congregation, have you ever been handed a book and then immediately just turned to the last page and read the concluding paragraph? Now, I'm not saying that you should do that. I am a little bit guilty on that count. I certainly have. But the reason that we don't normally do that is because the weight of the conclusion and its emotional climax will be lost on you. Because not knowing the plot or the characters or even the conflict, the resolution won't mean a whole lot. And even if you did understand its meaning at the surface level, it'd be only that. Now, as an example... um, Maybe some of you have read it. It's a classic. But if you were to pick up Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, and you were to turn to the last paragraph, you would be greeted with these words. He says, It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And for those of you who are familiar with that book, those words will mean a lot. They'll likely trigger maybe a past deep emotional feeling within you. Because as you read, you you came to know and to love or to villainize the characters in that book. And you recognize the deep meaning and the story behind those words. Now, I I didn't use that example saying you have to go out and, and read it now. That's not the point. The point is, if you don't know that story, if you haven't read it before, that ending won't mean a whole lot. You're simply left guessing. You can hear the words, but without the context, they're just that. They're simply words. They won't move you one ounce. Now, in this sermon, it may seem that we're doing something similar by looking at just the last verse of the book of 2 Corinthians. And you might wonder, can this be justified? Does the same argument hold true here as in a regular book? And and to that, I just have to say, brothers and sisters, this is maybe a cop-out, but this isn't a regular book. It's just, it's not. It's not a regular book. Still, there are elements of that example that will carry over. Where the example works is seen in your familiarity to the entire Bible. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, the blessing of 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen here, it won't mean much to you. It's not going to move you because the words have no depth behind them in your mind. But familiarity in itself, if you knew the whole Bible, 
in itself, that wouldn't be enough. Because an unbeliever can clinically unpack this verse, but they wouldn't be moved. As I said, this is not a regular book. We need God to reveal to us. We need him to work in our hearts and to give us eyes of faith to show us our sin and our need of a Savior and then bring us in repentance to that Savior, to Jesus Christ. It's at that point that the wonder of this benediction will be shown to change everything. Then, as believers, we'll see that the more we fill our minds with Scripture, and you can think of it, the deeper we dig our wells and, and the more we know God, the more profound that this blessing is going to appear. It's like we have a smudgy film over our eyes, and as we read the word and we grow in our love before God, the smudginess is just cleared off just a little bit at a time. We begin to see more clearly the wonder of our text today, that God himself is with us. And if God is with us, come what may, no matter what our weaknesses may be, It's in his strength that we'll see we can stand. We can stand, regardless of who or what will come against us. And it will become our delight to live forever in the light of the reality of this benediction blessing. So we can look at this verse, and it's one that if you've been attending church for any length of time, you've likely heard at the conclusion of a service. It goes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is a prayer of benediction from the Apostle Paul written to his beloved Corinthian church. This was a church, if you've read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it was riddled with problems. This was a church that was in need of repentance, of reform, and especially unity. They were very divided. Yet, we see that this was a church that Paul loved very dearly. A church that he had preached Christ to, and he had poured out his heart to on numerous occasions. He had longed to see them grow and to marvel at what they had received in the gospel when they had heard about Jesus Christ. And he longed to see them living that out, to live it out in wonder and thankfulness. Now, like a father who longs, or a mother, but a mother or father who longs for the very best for their child, in this blessing, Paul is concluding his book, by pointing his beloved, the saints, to their reality. And it is very good news. It's a prayer, and it is not even remotely wishy-washy at all. I want you to see, this is not, I hope that you're going to have this. That's not it. This is a prayer where Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, what we see here, this is yours. This is yours now. This is the reality in which you live. All of this, every single day of your life, because your God is for you. You have the grace of Christ. You have the love of God the Father. And you have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, this congregation was facing hard times. And at one point, Paul talks of this present distress that they had. They were divided. They had issues in this congregation. And when the temptation was to look at themselves, Paul is giving them a right perspective. He points them beyond themselves and back to God. Yes, the problems needed to be dealt with. There's no question of that. But that would only happen when they recognized the reality in which they lived. 
And for this, Paul goes back to the Trinitarian love of God and the redemption attained for them through the work of all three persons of the Trinity. And that will culminate in the future glory in heaven. Paul is saying, Beloved, I see and I know your trials, but God himself is with you. God himself is on your side. And this was their grounding reality then, and it's our grounding reality now. God is with us. Now, this is an immense truth. And because this benediction is is bound up in the immensity of God, tonight I'm barely going to be able to scratch the surface. I'm barely going to show you the tip of the iceberg. But we're going to make a small beginning. And I pray that as we look at this verse, it will help give you perspective as well. That it will strike your heart, that it will move you, it will move you to awe and a love for your gracious God. So let us see how our God is with us. And we're going to follow the natural breakdown of the text. Our first section will be the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second will be the love of God, the Father. And then the third will be the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we begin then with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And right from the start, if you're looking at the the passage there, you might hear something in the ordering that gives you just a, a pause. Because don't we normally think of the Trinity in the order of Father, Son, and Spirit? So why does Paul begin his Trinitarian blessing with the Son? Now, obviously, Paul has not made a mistake, and there's nothing inconsistent here. In our reading of 2 Corinthians 1, we not only got the context in which Paul was writing, but we see a hint there as to why Paul began his benediction at the end of this letter with Jesus. And if you want to, you can look back to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 19. And through to 22. And in that section, you'll see that Paul is stressing the centrality of Jesus Christ to the Christian experience. It's in Christ that the promises of God find their yes and their amen. It is in our unity with Jesus that we are reconciled to the Father. And we're given the Spirit in our hearts as the guarantee. And that's the pattern that we see in our text. This is a description from man's perspective, from our experience. And from our perspective, it it all begins with Jesus Christ. We begin with the grace of Christ because this is how we understand our relationship to God. It's by grace alone through Christ that we have salvation, a mediator who removes our sin and gives us his own righteousness And even now intercedes continually on our behalf in heaven. And it's by the grace through Christ that we are reconciled to God the Father. We come to know this reality through the mediatorial work of Christ. And so that is where Paul begins. You can think, for example, of Jesus' words in John 14, verse 6. As we're going through this, there are so many other passages that we can put on this passage. And we'll see that. But that's going to be the continuing work that comes out of this. If we start in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we start with Christ. You can ask, does the Father also show us grace? And of course he does. Of course he does. If I said otherwise, it would be unscriptural. You can see even 2 Corinthians chapter 1, how it began, as do many of Paul's other letters. It says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not to the exclusion of the Father's grace. But here Paul begins with the work of Christ and its centrality, because that is how we come to understand the love of God the Father towards us. Now, grace is one of those words that we as Christians, we just love. You have hundreds, perhaps thousands of hymns that have been written on the subject of grace. And you can think Amazing Grace, written by former uh, slave trader John Newton, would probably come to the top of your mind. It's the preeminent example, but there are so many others. And we have books that have been written capturing the importance of grace to the Christian. You've heard of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, but his autobiography, what he chose to call it, is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Churches, my own included, have also taken that name, Grace, into their name. And so we see grace is something very important to the Christian experience. It's by grace that we've been saved. And to be a recipient of grace is an essential part of what it is to be a Christian. But that brings us full circle. What is grace? And perhaps it's helpful if we start considering this by thinking through our position apart from Christ. Thinking, if he had not come to save us, where would we be? What is our state until we come to know the grace of Jesus Christ as our Savior? And John 1, in verse 16 and 17, speaking of Christ, says, For from his fullness we have all received, speaking of Christ, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law. Now the law required us to be perfectly holy. And under the law, we all stood condemned. Necessarily, we were separated from God by our sin. We stood guilty of every single offense, and we were hell-bound. We were sinners, all of us, deserving only the wrath of God. You can call to mind other passages. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Under the law, none are righteous, no, not one. And so not a single person could say, well, ah, I'm a good person. You'll hear people say that. Not true. The law would condemn us all. But that's where we see grace. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. And it's through the grace given through Christ that we are justified and then reconciled to God the Father. But we don't stop there because that wouldn't be the whole explanation. Often we think of grace as the unmerited favor of God shown to us at the cross. And that certainly is grace. It's the beating heart of what grace is, and we can never forget it. We can rightly get lost in wonder that the fact that our Savior went to the cross in our, in our place. And who cannot read of Christ pouring out his life on the cross of Calvary and not be overwhelmed with awe that the Lord of the universe 
would die for us. And we will bask in wonder at this for all of eternity. That Christ, who is the author of life, came to save such a worm as I by his own death in my place on the cross. This is grace. This is grace immense and freely offered to you. But grace is only partially understood at the cross. It's also seen beyond the cross in Christ's work in sustaining weak believers, interceding on our behalf and staying with us daily. Behold, he says, I am with you to the very end of the age. That is every single day. The reality that Christ goes with us through every trial to the very end. That the King of glory, who is infinite in power and majesty, is the one who goes before us, leading us, as Psalm 42 says, as a compassionate shepherd leads his sheep. Paul understood this other side of grace, this this act of grace, if we want to say that. He understood what it meant that Christ was with us. He understood how it changed everything as well. And if you just look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about that awful thorn in his flesh, he says there, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that thorn, that it should leave me. But he, and he's speaking of Christ, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul got that it wasn't going to be about mustering the strength that he had inside of himself. It was the grace of Christ that would sustain him. The fact that Christ himself was with him. And here in our text, Paul is praying for the Corinthian believers. Believers who had so many struggles. People, if we think about it, who are a lot like us. He's putting all the circumstances in instant perspective. And he's offering them comfort. God himself is with you. And you can see also how Paul ties this in to the sufficiency of Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can look at the names that were given here. He's identified as our Lord in his divinity. Jesus in his humanity and Christ in his office. We get all three names. That is, he is the anointed one of God, the long-awaited Messiah. Here we have a Savior who met every requirement to bring us our salvation and lead us on to glory. In this Savior, we have fully God and fully man, the great high priest of the book of Hebrews, who made the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, and who lives continually to offer intercession for us before the Father. Now this is grace, and this is grace that is greater than all our sins than all the trials that threaten to choke us out. It's grace. It's grace beyond our understanding, grace without end. And it combats the whispers of the devil. Now, Satan insinuates that God is holding something back from you. But here Paul is saying, you have God himself. You have everything. You have Christ as your Savior, a Savior who, knowing your weaknesses, your pain, is not distant at all, but he's working all things for good. 
He who loved you so dearly that he has purchased your salvation at the cost of his agonizing death on the cross. He's the one who's interceding for you continually. And so I ask, do you really think that he's going to leave you at this point? He's given you himself. Do you think that he's holding something back from you? The grace of Christ is everything that Christ has done and continues to do on our behalf. And it is immense. Now, have we even begun to grasp the implications of this? How can we even plumb the limits of this grace? Because it's limitless. It is beyond a lifetime of study, let alone trying to shove it into one little sermon. It just can't be done. You have Christ himself. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he is with you. And we know, undeserved? Absolutely. But Jesus Christ is yours. And surely that changes everything. In our second point, we'll consider the love of God the Father. And I know in the text it says, the love of God. But here, I just want to take a second and say, when it says just God in the Bible, it's speaking of God the Father. And so here we're going to be talking about the love of God the Father, your Father. And you can remember what Paul is saying in this benediction. He's saying, you have these things. You have this already. So what is the love of God the Father? What does that mean for us as believers? And first off, we should press back against this idea that the Father did not love us until the Son went to the cross. It's not true. The Father has loved his elect before the beginning of time. And that seems like something that's really hard for us to wrap our minds around. We think in in time-bound terms. But that's what God's word says, before time began. But it's important for us to understand this. We're talking about an eternal love of God the Father. We can go to Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 5, where Paul breaks out in praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so we see the love of the Father. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for what? For adoption, to be sons and daughters. And see also that this is the will of our triune God, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have shared in one will for our salvation all the way back from eternity. There's no hint of a conflict here. From the beginning, this was the triune plan, the salvation and adoption of sinners through the reconciliation of Christ. As a hymn writer rightly expresses, what wondrous love is this? And see how this ties into our text. In just a few verses, we put a bit of flesh on what the love of God the Father means. Well, that's part of what I want you to see here. 
that every single passage of Scripture sheds illuminating light upon the depth of the benediction that Paul was leaving for his beloved Corinthian congregation, a blessing that is yours through Christ. So every time you open the word and you read, you can read it in light of this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And you can see how putting flesh on on each of these phrases increases the wonder. And you can do this. You can take this benediction because it's your reality. And you can clothe it in scripture. You can do this in your devotions. You can just think of, of these three different categories and how every single time you're learning something new about God, it all fits into this because we've received God himself. The more we see the immensity of this reality, the more we realize the proper orientation of our lives. That we are very small. And we think of ourselves so much, but but we're here for God's glory. And we'll see God's faithfulness in light of our flickering devotion. You know your own heart. You know that you need help in this. But unlike our own The love of our Father is unchanging. It's a love that won't ever let us go. Now, we see our devotion. It it rises and it falls. We have good days. We have bad days. But it's like the waves. Because one day, we rise on the crest of a wave and we just feel as if we've never walked so close in the footsteps of our Savior. And then the next day, we find ourselves in the trough. And we're just wondering if he has ever loved us at all. But God's love isn't like that. We're like that. But God isn't. God is not unstable. You can think of Paul's string of questions in Romans 8. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has given us himself. And again, we're just seeing the very tip of the iceberg. You can think of that love. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Lord of the universe. Can the one who made everything not provide for you? Can he who sent his son, his well-beloved son, to die for you not care for you? Look what he says. He draws us into his family. You can hear the wonder in the voice of John the Apostle in 1 John 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. All the benefits of being children of God are ours. We have God himself. We may call him my Father. See what it means that he is with us, that he loves us. We're not neglected, sons and daughters. You can hear the testimony of the Apostle Peter. And at this point, I feel like I'm just loading text on you, text and text. But that's part of the point. The, the entire Bible is speaking about this. You can go back and go deeper and deeper. But let's hear what the Apostle Peter says. He says in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. 
Can we read that and doubt the love of our God? Come what may, can we doubt the love that he has shown to us? How can we do it? It's a love that he has promised and that he doesn't change in. And it's a love that changes everything. And we can see again how just a few more verses begin to build this benediction out. It gets bigger and bigger. So are you weary? Are you doubting? You can take heart. You can behold the love of God the Father. You can take hold of the reality of his unchanging faithfulness. Because like the Corinthians, we have our trials. We have our struggles. We aren't always perfectly united. But like them, if God is for us, that changes everything. It changes the way we deal with each other. It changes our reality. In our wrestling, I think you may have experienced this, in our own minds, we can create just a whole valley of despair. We can paint the clouds as if they're pitch black. You hear just negativity everywhere and, and the news always looks bad. And, and we begin to wonder, maybe, maybe Satan is actually winning. And we may wonder if God is really going to do what he said he will. But in our weakness, we can lift up our eyes. We can't forget that his is already the victory He is the one who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. So our eyes lift from ourselves. They lift from our circumstances. And once more, we can rest in wonder that God himself is with us. And in our third point, we'll consider the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the ongoing grace of Christ. And we've seen the love of God the Father. But what is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? What does this mean for us? And again, I'm like a broken record. There's so much that we could build up here. But we're only going to look at just a few key points. When we come to the fellowship or the communion of the Holy Spirit, one of the primary things that we should never grow weary of seeing is the astounding mercy of God in giving us the Holy Spirit. To begin, Scripture tells us that until the Holy Spirit comes and works in our lives, until he opens our eyes to see the truth of God's word, our sinfulness, and our need of a Savior, we are dead. We are dead in our sin. And you can think of Jesus' words to Nicodemus on that that evening In John 3, verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't one day just wake up and decide, today is the day, now I'm going to decide and I'm going to follow Jesus. It's God who has predestined. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes to our dead hearts and he makes us alive by converting us and making us believers. We need him to stir up faith within us. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot be saved. The Bible is very clear. We are dead until he works. So this work is essential. But this in itself is just a small part of what he does. You can think of Jesus' words on the night of his arrest. Just before he'd go to the cross and leave his disciples, we have in John 16, verse 7 and 8, 
He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. You can think on that. To your advantage. To your advantage that he would go away. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to be resurrected. He had to be ascended. But he wouldn't leave us. He would send the helper It would be to our advantage. And the word helper used here in the Greek means one who helps by consoling, encouraging, or mediating on behalf of someone else. And this is part of what the Holy Spirit does for us. He consoles and he encourages us in this life. But what is the ultimate source of that encouragement? He shows us that we have fellowship with God himself, that our God is with us. That salvation is ours because of Christ's strength, not our own. Now, we may have seasons of trial where we may question God's love toward us, but the Holy Spirit assures us of the love of God. And Scripture tells us exactly that in Romans 5. The Holy Spirit assures us that our hope in God is not misplaced because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is not just a vague love. This is the immense love of God the Father. A love that is also in, seen in our adoption as sons and daughters. That's the point that Romans 8 is making. Besides many other points, Romans 8, one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. But it says there, But you have received the spirit of adoption, As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have the favor of God as His children. And this is sweet, immense familial fellowship. Through the grace of Christ shown to us as unworthy sinners, And the love of God the Father, we are adopted sons and daughters. And we're assured of this by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption. Through the Holy Spirit, we may cry out to our God as our Father. We even stand to inherit the kingdom. How can we not marvel at that? Here we are, as unworthy sons and daughters, We've broken every single commandment. We have a love that rises and falls like the waves. And then we're reminded that God is not like that. That he is perfect. That he is compassionate. That his love never fails. And through the Holy Spirit, he assures us that his love is towards us. That he will bring us home to future glory. And again, we end up marveling, what wondrous love is this? We could go on and on. But that's the beauty of the immensity of this benediction because it reflects God himself. Now, if any doubt remains of God's being with you, of his love towards you, we'll look at Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14. And there we learn that those who have believed in Christ are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. 
The gift of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee from God that our hope is not misplaced. God had already given, think about it, he'd already given us his word. He'd already given us his promises. He'd given us the covenants. He'd given us the oaths. He'd given us the stories of his faithfulness all through the Bible. We'd seen his unchangeable nature, but then he gives us one more incredible assurance, an assurance to dwell inside of us forever. And that is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within our hearts. What further proof could we need that God is for us? What more, and it sounds flippant, but what more could you want? Than that. In Him, we have the beginning of our future inheritance. We have it now, already. As the Puritan John Owen notes, in the Holy Spirit, we have the first fruits of glory, the ultimate pledge of God's love, and the earnest of it all. That means, in the Holy Spirit, we have the beginning of our inheritance and the promise that everything else will follow. So you can see we have a Trinitarian redemption. God's not divided in his will at all. It is his delight to show us grace and love and to share fellowship with us. And this is an incredible reality. As believers, when we go deeper and deeper into the word, as you hear the word preached from this pulpit week after week, your understanding of the depth of this benediction will only get deeper and deeper and deeper until the very end of your life. Because each time that you're learning more about God, you're deepening your understanding of what this benediction means, what it means to have your God be with you. Now, we can stand in awe of the immense and unchanging love of God the Father. We can stand in awe of the incredible grace of Christ offered to you in every part of our salvation, both at the cross and onwards. We can be comforted by the fellowship and the guarantee that we have in the Holy Spirit. But what does the reality that God is with us, that he is for us, what does that do for your anxieties, for our struggles, and, and maybe our frustrations? It gives us perspective. We can spend so much time worrying and being anxious or squabbling and being dissatisfied. We can be wringing our hands and just wondering what will tomorrow bring. But to all of those fears, if we're looking at ourselves or we're looking at the news, we're looking at the world, let me just say you're looking in entirely the wrong place. But we also know ourselves. We know we're tempted to strive too much in our own strength. And we forget to look to the one who is truly our strength. Our eyes need to turn from our feeble strength and in trust turn to the God who is with us. Do you trust that he can provide for you? That he does provide for you? Do you trust that he does work all things for the good of those who love him? Do you trust that you have a sure hope in Jesus Christ? Do you trust that God himself is truly with you? That he is for you? That he is your God and you are his beloved child? Because you can trust that.
It's what he has said. Now, if you're a Christian, you have God himself. You belong to him and you are his child. This is the reality in which you live today. And it's your assurance day after day. Do we deserve it? We've already said no. We know that. Where would we be without these promises? Without God being with us? We'd be lost. We'd be hopeless. We'd be fearful. We'd be abandoned. And we'd be destined for hell. But is that your reality? No. If you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then all else that is included in this benediction is yours. You are going to be growing in your understanding of this for the rest of your life, for eternity, because God himself assures you that he is with you. We can take heart. What more could we desire? What greater comfort could we receive? Through grace, we have the reconciling blood of the Son, the Lamb of God, We have the unfailing love of God the Father, and we have the uniting fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have every assurance our God is with us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, as we are here tonight, and we we even hear these words that you are with us. It's, it's too immense. It, it leaves us in a place where we can't fully grasp it. But I ask that it's something that you would help us to grow in our understanding of. Something that we would never grow tired of hearing. Something we would never grow tired of meditating on. That we would see that this really does put all of our life in perspective. That all the fears that we have for the future, all the worries we have today, everything that can come upon us, that you are the God who holds the circumstances. You are the one who brings us to it. You're the one who puts the the breath in our lungs moment by moment, the very sustainer of our life. And if you are the one bringing us to it, that you are the one who will also bring us through it. Lord, we struggle. Our eyes often look to ourselves and we forget And our love is inconsistent. But turn our eyes again to the fact that you are the faithful God. That your love never fails. That you tell us we may come to you. We may cast our anxieties upon you. Because you care for us. What a love you have shown. What grace upon grace. What wonder that you have saved us from our own sin. That you have Come to us in our weakness and in our rebellion. That you don't leave us even then, but that you carry us through. You give us your righteousness, Lord Jesus. You intercede for us continually. Surely we are not left alone. We are your children, and so we dare to say, Abba, Father, our Lord and our God, may our eyes be turned to you. We pray in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.